Well, good morning, church. Hope everyone's doing okay today. We're glad that you are here uh, to join us in worship. If you're a guest, if you're new here, or if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I hope that you will find me and my wife, Aubrey. We'll be at the back after services are over. Please uh, come by and let us uh, shake your hand. And uh, we want to know who you are. And whether you've been around a while, we just haven't had a chance to meet you, or whether you're a guest today, uh, we'd be honored if you'd take a moment uh, and come by and see us. I want to thank uh, Stacy and Gabby. I want to thank Michael. I want to thank Tyler and Caroline, all those who have uh, led us so far and helped focus our thoughts as they've been up here speaking to us. I'm grateful uh, for their efforts in doing that. Uh, I, I am right now uh, learning what it is to uh, live in Dallas in the land of the Cowboys. And Today, just in the, the side conversations, I'm kind of learning who our optimists are at church. Okay? Uh, just, just hearing how you're feeling about this evening is kind of helping me learn the varied personalities that we have here. And so we'll talk again next week and, and see, how that's, see how that's worked out. I won't make any other comments because I don't want to mess things up. And what do I know, right? Um, but we're, we're, you know, we're, we're excited, we're rooting, let's see, what, let's see what happens tonight. I know that's on a lot of our minds, and it's kind of neat to be around and, and hear that buzz as, as these playoffs begin, and we root for our team. Well, we've been in this series from the book of James, talking about pure religion. And one week, uh, we talked about James and his view of trials, and how trials might not be from God, but they can lead us to God. And then... Uh, we talked about what it's like to put our faith and works together. And we said, even a little cheesily, that if you say amen, you've got to say, I'm in. Hey, there we go. So today we're going to talk about favoritism and this story uh, that we just heard read about the best seat in the house. So in fall of 2000, I had come down here for a concert. It, it became actually the First of a tradition that has still lasted till now to come down to see a certain band in concert. But I was down here, freshman year of college, drove down with a dear friend to see a show at, I still, I don't know what you call it. Is it the Starplex? I, they keep renaming the thing, but it's the amphitheater at Fair Park. So went to see a show there, got there pretty early because I was still trying to navigate all the different highways down here. So arrived even before the opening band started, sat in our seats which were toward the back of the seats, but an upgrade from the lawn where I had been my first year. I discovered I enjoyed my personal space and was not a fan of the lawn at the amphitheater. So sitting in our seats, quite a ways back from the stage, feeling pretty good about where we were, and about midway into the opening band's act, a person came up to us, and he, he had on the gear and the lanyard that suggested he was part of the crew in some sort. And he came back and he said, hey, where did you get your tickets? And I said, oh, yeah, I got them through the fan club, you know, like a big nerd. And he said, well, and he looked at our tickets. He said, come with me. And he escorted us down to front row, dead center, right in front of the mic stand. And we got to finish the opening band's act. And they were done. And we watched them clean up the stage and get ready. And then for the whole evening, I am 10 feet from Dave Matthews himself. Some of y'all identify with that, and some of y'all just judged me for that, and that's okay. 
the whole show, right there, enough where I was kind of yelling at him in the band during the, during the uh, between songs, enough that we yelled out a request for a rare song during the encore, and he played it. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, kind of felt, you know, showing off to my friend, look, I got these tickets, and look, we got down to the front row. And it spoiled me now because it's very difficult to attend a concert once you've been in those spots. You know, it's like, oh, now I'm 10 rows back, you know, in the bad seats. But I just remember how it felt to be escorted down to the best seats you could imagine. And we're going to talk about that in the book of James today. So we're not going to reread everything uh, that was just read for us, but let's summarize the story, right? So there's a a gathering of Christians. We'll talk about what that might mean. And somebody comes in looking pretty nice, obviously dressed in good clothes, and is escorted to the good seats. Now, we might think that means up front. I've learned in church culture, some people might think the best seats are in the back. (laughs) Not everybody wants to be up front. But the best seats, a seat that conveys this person's worthy of honor. This is a special person. Let's put them in a prominent seat where everyone knows how important they are. And then a poor man comes in with a very different set of clothes, very different presentation. And this person is given not just, not just neutral uh, treatment, but bad treatment. Standing room only for you. You just stand over there. You're not important, and we don't want anyone to see you. And James is not thrilled by this scenario, right? He uses some pretty strong words, discrimination, evil, judgment. All those things happen in this story. So we're going to walk through it. I want to talk about a few terms in this story. It's not a super complicated story, but there's a few things that will help us understand it even more. We're going to talk about why it's wrong, and we're going to give ourselves some different ways of acting in light of this story. So a few things, a few words that I want to draw your attention to. So James says that a man comes into your meeting. It's interesting, James there uses the word synagogue. Now there's a word for church. The New Testament writers know it. They use it. James uses synagogue, and so it's caused some scholars to think, well, does he have in mind a different scenario? Is this... Is this a meeting maybe only of Jewish Christians, and they would still call it a synagogue? Or is it, is it some sort of legal proceeding? Because you could imagine that word being used there as, as the maybe Jewish council met together. But James addresses his letter to brothers and sisters, and then he goes on to say, your meeting. So most scholars think he's just talking about a church service in an interesting way. It makes most sense to read this as some sort of Sunday worship assembly among Christians. And then he talks about the man who comes in. And you may not have noticed this, but James actually doesn't say a rich man. Now he talks about the rich later in this chapter, and he definitely talks about the rich in chapter 5. In this setting, he just says a man comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. He doesn't call him here rich. It's a fair assumption to think that's what he means. But literally, he says, the guy, literally, he says, it's a gold fingered man. We got some James Bond stuff going on here. A gold finger and fine clothes. And what we know about first century culture is that everyone except the very wealthy wore just homemade clothes. So this person's clothes would have stood out in a big way. 
They're fine clothes made by whatever their equivalent uh, would be of a, of a good tailor who's taken great material, and everyone else is there in just their homemade plain clothes. Now, I'd say that to remind us that this person, is, it's likely he has in mind a rich person, but it also could be somebody who is wanting to be perceived that way but is not, in fact, wealthy, who's trying to dress the part, right? As the kids would say, they're flexing a little bit, right? Showing off this nice clothing, even though that's really not who they are, but want to be perceived that way so that they might get treated in the way this man is treated. So we've got a man who comes in dressed well, nice jewelry, and then we do have a poor man, and James uses the word for poor. And what we know from the way this word gets used in Christianity is that poor is not always just an economic status. The word poor got used to talk about a certain virtuous disposition. Think of how Jesus says, blessed are the poor, especially if you read Luke's Sermon on the Mount. There, there came to be an association of the poor who put their trust in God and not in wealth. Now, we'd, we'd need a whole different sermon series to talk about the theology of, of wealth and poverty, which is not exactly the scope of our message today. But this poor person, I think James wants us to see as a virtuous man who comes in to the assembly with a, a good heart, wanting to be there. And he says this poor man is wearing filthy clothes. That word is not just about the cleanliness of this person's clothes. That word, filthy, had to do with like moral rot. There's a lot of social stigma about that. So not just a person whose clothes are unclean, but who's, who would be perceived as his soul is unclean. He's, he's dirty in every way. Unfortunately, that's the stigma. And that's lasted through the ages and through cultures. We struggle with it ourselves, I'm sure. Judging a person's morality based on their appearance. And I have learned a lot from authors who have talked to us about how our brain makes snap judgments, even that we don't believe in our hearts. But we, we make a first judgment, our fast brain... And then our slow brain would later on say, well, wait a minute, that's not right. And so authors like Richard Beck, whose book Unclean changed some things for me, Daniel Kahneman, his book Thinking Fast and Slow, those reinforce what's happening here, that, we, that a person's appearance is changing how we think of their morality. They're not good enough to be here. And we hate it, but we do this too, don't we? not right, and James takes us to task for it. Two more things about this passage. He says this person is shown to the good seats. Again, not new with us. Jesus in Matthew 25 talks about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and he says about them, everything they do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. It's almost this comical picture of making their, their garments and accessories overly large to make sure they're noticed. Look at how virtuous I am. Notice me 
and give me preferential treatment. And finally, James says when we do this, we dishonor the poor. And that word dishonor, boy, that carries a wide range of meaning. Insulted, even oppressed. That This treatment of the poor man who comes in is an act of oppression against the poor. James will use that word in that sense. So he says this thing is wrong. And it's not the kind of behavior that followers of Jesus should engage in. And he gives three reasons, I think, why this is wrong. The first reason is more theological. He says when you do this, you are discriminating and you are judging. That's what he says in verse 4. When you do this, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's convicting, isn't it? It's an act of discrimination. We don't want to be people who discriminate. James says when we do that, we are discriminating. April Love Fordham, in her book, James and the Suburbs, says that favoritism is a type of discrimination where we choose to support the powerful over the powerless the important over the marginalized, our family members over strangers, and even our neighbors over our enemies. I read that and I think, wait, aren't I supposed to do that? Jesus takes all those categories away, doesn't he? That's not right. Even back in the Old Testament, this was an important principle for God's people. Leviticus says, do not pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And then in Deuteronomy, the instructions about what kind of judges and leaders you should set up. The people are told to appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you. And they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone. That's the first reason. The second reason is practical. These people that you're showing favoritism to, they don't reciprocate your kindness. That's what James says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He goes, isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones dragging you to court? Aren't they the ones blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And later in chapter 5, James really takes them to task. What his, his main concern with the rich there is that they're exploiting their employees. They're engaging in wage theft, and they're not paying them what they're owed. So James is saying, in the way his society is working with the wealthy in his society, he's going, why would you even, you're not going to get what you want out of them. If you show them the good seats, they're still going to take you to court. So very practically, take away all the nice theological reasons. It's not even going to work out for you if you think that currying this kind of favor might get you something. It won't. Then the third reason, it's, it's moral. You are breaking the law, he says. And that's what he said in that passage uh, toward the end where he says, if you show favoritism, you are convicted as lawbreakers. Because if you keep the whole law and stumble at one point... You've broken all of it. The person who said you shall not commit adultery and also said you shall not murder, but if you commit adultery but don't com- excuse me, if you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. It's it's kind of like he's saying, hey, if you discriminate, it's it's no better than committing adultery or murder. They're all the same. 
kind of envision a sheet of glass that gets a break in one point. We wouldn't say that's a whole piece of glass anymore. The integrity is broken. There's no, there's no sense of just breaking this one part, but being okay about the rest. So don't fool yourselves in thinking, well, I'm not committing adultery. I'm, I'm not murdering. I'm just discriminating. That's not how it works. So what does James call us to do from this passage? I think James calls us to focus on people and not a bunch of the other things we tend to focus on. I think G- James calls us to focus first on people and not their presentation. One rabbi has said, If before a judge two men appear for judgment, one rich and another poor, the judge should say to the rich man, Either dress in the same manner as he is dressed or clothe him like you're clothed. There's a judge who knows that sometimes our outcomes, the way people perceive us, is based on our appearance. And that's wrong. Plutarch said, most men think themselves robbed of wealth if they're prevented from displaying it. I'm not wealthy if I don't get to show it off to people. If I don't get to use it to get myself better treatment. We know, unfortunately, that sometimes people get different treatment based on how they present themselves. We live in a world where our jobs, our schools, our social circles, we know that that happens. People get treated differently based on how they present themselves. It happens all over the place, but not here. Not here. We don't do that, do we? I can't control what happens at your workplaces and at your schools. None of us can control that. Those are the rules that we've come to accept, but we don't have to accept them here, do we? No, we don't. I think James calls us to focus on people and not the power that they have. Cicero said, rank must be maintained. And we can read lots of people in his day saying, rank must be maintained. Power is seductive. It's also frightening. And when we act as the people James gets onto in this passage by giving someone better seats because of how they're dressed and then putting the poor man off to the side. I think, if I just look at myself and my own motives, I'm either doing it because I want this person to do something nice for me based on the power they have, or I'm worried what they'll do against me because of the power they have. And so I better treat this person differently based on his or her appearance. Again, That happens the other six days of the week. It happens all over the place. You've been on both sides of that. That may be how the world plays, but we don't do that here. God's people are not seduced by power like that. And finally, we focus on people and not their possessions. We don't manipulate people by pretending to like them just to get what they have. My experience with people who have wealth is that they are honored to be asked directly to help with things that they believe to be important in kingdom-building work. We don't have to manipulate people. We don't have to pretend. So we may live in a world that stratifies people based on their possessions, and we deal with that all the time in the other areas of our life. That's the reality everywhere else, but not here. We don't have to play by those rules. Jesus would call us to ignore those rules. 
So what do we do? What are our next right steps? Here's how we change our mentality. When you are looking at clothing, either your own that you're going to wear or the clothing of others, are you thinking about the impressive brand names? When you consider an invitation for how to spend your time, are you only thinking about what that person can do for you? When you decide whom you're going to talk to, are you thinking about these power structures? Are you thinking about how to curry favor? So when you do all those things, when you look at clothing, when you consider how you spend your time, when you consider whom you're going to talk to, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That's our solution. So all these rules might be true in all the other areas of our life. But James says when the church is together, we don't have to play by those rules. We live by the freedom-giving law that shows mercy. And that mercy triumphs over the judgment of the world that says we are defined by our presentation and our power and our possessions. We, we're defined by our identity in Jesus Christ and nothing else. So if I look at you and I, and I can't see Christ in you, then I'm no better than an adulterer or a murderer, James says. So may God have mercy on us all as we live this out. And may we show God's mercy to others. Let's be standing.